All right, let's turn to First uh, Samuel chapter five. Good to be together this morning. And uh, just to by reminder, we're in a series called Highlights from First Samuel. So the reason I'm calling it Highlights is to make it really clear that we're not going verse by verse through the book. So, you know, we're, we're taking large chunks, but I do encourage you to consider reading through this book on your own. Part of my desire to do this is because I want us to become familiar with the Old Testament as well and just get, see some of the beautiful narratives and books, not only for the history that's contained in them, but for the amazing truths that they reveal to us about God. And I think we're going to see that a bit today as well. So here's where we're at as we come to chapter 5. Israel's in a dark place. They were um, going to war against the Philistines. They were beaten. So they took the Ark of the Covenant, the holy Ark of God, into battle with them, thinking that would mean God is with them and they were certain of victory, but they were defeated even worse. 30,000 men were killed. Hophni and Phinehas, the two priests that were scoundrels, were killed. And the Ark was captured by the Philistines and they took it back with them to Philistia. And uh, when Eli, the high priest, heard this news, he fell over and broke his neck and died. So in one day, this tragedy, this, all this disaster hit Israel. And this is just a devastating time for Israel. It felt to them like God had abandoned them. Or worse, it felt like God, their God, Yahweh, had been defeated by Dagon, and the Philistines, Dagon being the Philistine god. So the truth behind the curtain is that God is disciplining them because led by Hophni and Phinehas who were stealing from God's offerings, who were sleeping with the women who were serving in the house of God, God had determined, I am going to put to death those two men. And they had led Israel into sin and into idolatry. And so Israel is in this spiritual place of rot and decay. And so God is disciplining them. But to them, it felt like God had either been beaten or had left them. It's a dark day for them. Now, chapter 5 shifts our focus to the Philistines and to the ark. So we follow them and what goes on with them. And to the Philistines, this is an amazing day. This is like we have won the lottery. We have beaten Israel. Our God, Dagon, has, has defeated their God, Yahweh, who had this great reputation for being this powerful God and, and split the Red Sea and, and did all these amazing things. But guess what? Our God beat their God. You ever remember that? You know, my dad could beat up your dad. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. Our, my, God, my God can beat up your God, and that's how they feel. So chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God, brought it into the house of Dagon, and set it up beside Dagon. Let's pray. Father, as we come into your word, we want to hear your heart in this time. We want to learn about you, but we don't just want to learn about you. We want, we want to draw near to you through Christ, our Savior. Lord, teach us in this time in your word, we pray, and encourage our hearts. 
Strengthen our faith. Strengthen our convictions, Lord. And strengthen our view of how great and awesome you are, God. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, probably most of you are not familiar with Dagon, but he was a rather imposing looking God. They used to, you know this, they used to build statues and carvings to their gods. And then they would worship these gods. Well, Dagon was half man and half fish. He had the head of a man, the, the upper torso of a man, arms and hands of a man, but then the bottom was a fish, a tail. And so he is big, he's tall, he's imposing, and he's looking down, and they bring the Ark of the Covenant in, um, and he's towering over the Ark of the Covenant. Visually speaking, the Ark was far less imposing and impressive than Dagon. The Jews were forbidden to make any graven image of their God. So... But God gave them the instructions. He gave to Moses the instructions to, to build the Ark of the Covenant. And if you have seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have an idea of what the Ark looked like. It was a, 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 a basically a chest about four feet wide, two and a half feet high, two and a half feet uh, deep. And... Um, it had a gold lid on it, and then it had two angels made out of gold over the lid with their, their wings stretched over it, touching each other's wings. But it wasn't anything particularly impressive looking. Certainly not next to this huge statue of a manfish. So inside the ark, God had commanded Moses to put the rod of Aaron. Remember the rod that they threw down in front of the Pharaoh and it turned into a snake? Put that rod in the chest, into the Ark of the Covenant. Also, he had, them, he had, had Moses put the two tablets with the law, the Ten Commandments, on it, into the chest. Finally, they were told to put a jar of manna. Remember the food that God provided miraculously? Put a jar of manna into the chest. Those three things which represent... God's power to deliver the rod, God's law, and God's provision were represented in these three things. Put in the chest, the lid was closed, and the ark, just to understand where it was when Jew, the Jews had it, they had a tabernacle. Eventually they would build a temple, but right now they have a tabernacle, and it's comprised, comprised of two rooms, what's called the holy place where you could enter in, and then there was the Holy of Holies, separated by a thick curtain, and only, and that's where it was in the Holy of Holies that the Ark of the Covenant was placed. And no one was allowed to enter that place except the high priest once a year. Once a year, he would enter the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle blood on the lid of the Ark, which is called the mercy seat for the sins of the people. Now this was so serious that they literally tied a rope around the waist of the high priest so that if he did anything wrong and God struck him dead, because nobody could enter that room, they could pull him out by the rope. That's how serious it was. We're going to come back to that in a little bit.
But here we are, Dagon, huge God, looking over, shadowing over this small little chest that is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Philistines think Dagon has won. And the Jews are struggling with that. There are times in history, but let me bring it closer to home. There are times in our lives when it doesn't seem as though God is real. Or if he's real, it doesn't seem like God is very powerful feels like maybe God is overwhelmed. We see all this stuff coming in that is so against God, and it's gaining traction, it's gaining ground, it's like a wave flooding over. And where is God? And where is his power? There are seasons like that. What I want to do in this message this morning is to just encourage your heart and your faith because, because there are times, and I've experienced them too. God, where are you? Never count God out. Never count God out. Never think, oh, God's not in this. God's not able. God's not. God is God. And never count him out. Stir up your faith that God is God. And never count him out. I want to share from these forward passages that we're going to come to three true things about God in the narrative that we see that's just as true today as it was then. And I want us to let these truths about who God is really sink into our hearts. And some of them may feel a little hard to grapple with until we see the whole picture here. Three truths about God. First of all, God is powerful. Let's continue reading. Verse, 1 Samuel 5, 3. Okay, so they've got the ark there. They've got Dagon there. Verse 3, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. See, they thought Yahweh would be cowering. They come in and Dagon has done a face plant in front of the ark. He's lying there like he's worshiping the ark. You know, and so, but the Philistines aren't going to believe that. So they're just thinking, you know, I, I, I don't know what happened here. It's never happened before, but Dagon must have slipped, you know? I mean, best scenario, he was celebrating, he was dancing, that is victory, and he slipped. So they prop him back up. Verse, continuing in verse 3, so they took Dagon, and they put him back in his place. When you got to prop your God up, it doesn't speak too highly of your God. Verse 4, but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. But listen to this. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. What's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. Isaiah 45 verse 5, God says, I am the Lord. And there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. God doesn't allow other gods to come alongside of him. God does not allow other gods to stand in his corner and say, hey, let's do this together. 
Dagon is no God. And so God knocks him down. He's not going to share his glory with a dead statue that cannot think and cannot have any power to do anything. Cut his head off because he ain't thinking anyway. Cut his head off because he's got no authority over anything. Cut his hands off because he couldn't even... He couldn't even help you do anything, much less have the power to save your soul and change your life and give you victory on the battlefield. Cut his hands off because he's got no power anyway. God's not going to share his glory with a dead statue. Here's what idols are. Idols are gods created by man, propped up, and then worshiped by man. Here's what Yahweh is or who he is. No one created Yahweh. He created all things. And he alone is worthy of worship. Paul writes to the Thessalonians that through the gospel, they had turned from idols to the living God. And because of that, they were experiencing the power and the blessing of God. Now, here's the here's thing historically. Too often the church, like Israel, here's what we struggle with when we're honest. We turn from the living God to idols. And by the way, an idol, you're thinking, I don't have a statue of a fish man in my house. So I don't have any idols. Now, idols back then were often statues. But idols can be anything. Literally anything anything that we put in the place of God. When we trust our bank account, when we derive our security, our sense of security from how much is in our bank account, money is our idol. When we think that life is all about pursuing fun and pleasure and recreation and good times, pleasure is our idol. And by the way, when pleasure is your idol and you think that the meaning of life is to be, have pleasure and fun, when hard times come and there's no pleasure and there's no fun, you think that life isn't worth living. Because your idol has gotten knocked down. Food can be an idol. Sex can be an idol. Popularity, science, politics, all can become idols. Now I want you to notice, nothing that I have mentioned in this list is necessarily a bad thing. None of them are bad things. But when we make them number one in our lives... They will always let us down. They are lousy gods. They are false gods with no power to save us. Turning from idols to the living God means putting God first and letting everything else fall into its proper place. We have money. Want to be wise with it. We have all these blessings. We want to be, enjoy them and be wise with them. By all means, have your political views and everything. Don't turn any of that into your God. Don't center your life around any of those things or they will let you down because they're not big enough and they're not powerful enough. 
Turning from idols to the living God means turning, means putting God first. And then everything else gets into proper order in our lives. Now, I want to just mention this. In the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar erected a really big God statue. False God, idol. But it was really tall. I forget, 40, 50 feet high. It was really tall. 90. 90. I was undercutting Nebuchadnezzar. He would, have, he would have thrown me in a den of lions for that. But Nebuchadnezzar loved this 90-foot idol so much, and it was so big and so powerful that he said, I, I can't keep this to myself. Everybody's got to worship this idol. He said, so here's what's going to happen. When we play soft little music, worship, you know, a Hosanna song or something, you're going to, everybody's going to bow down to this idol and worship it. And we know the story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Hebrews, they refused to do that. Now listen, when our culture erects idols and says, bow down to this, or else, how are we to respond? How are we to respond to that? I think we can learn a lesson from Daniel and his friends. I want you to observe something. Now, we've moved into Daniel now, but I want, if you know the story, and you probably do know the story, I want you to observe and notice they didn't get angry. They didn't curse Nebuchadnezzar out. They didn't walk around insulting everybody who was bowing down. They didn't start a social blog insulting and criticizing and sarcastic about all these, you know, idol worshipers and everything. And No, you know what they did? When they said, bow down, and the music played softly, and, you know, and everybody's bowing down, all they did was they just stood quietly, and they trusted that God would back them up. And they knew God would back them up, but no matter how he chose to or not to back them up, they were committed to accept whatever consequences came. So I think there's a lesson in that because I, I believe today there's a lot of idols right now. And, you know, it's changed in that today you've got to bow down to these idols or else. You've got to, you've got to celebrate these idols or else. You can't just say, hey, I don't agree with that. You've got to celebrate them. You've got to party like Dagon was when he slipped, you know, or else. And how do we deal with that? I really believe Daniel and his three friends give us the direction. Daniel says this, those who know their God will do exploits. Those who know their God will do amazing things by the Spirit of God. Listen, those exploits he's talking about are not picking fights with everybody who disagrees with us. And it's not seeing those who disagree with us as enemies. Daniel and his company didn't do it that way. When we have the courage to stand for God and to bow to God alone, we will see God do great things for the glory of his name. I say this because we live in such an antagonistic age, don't we? There's so much, everybody's outraged about, I don't even know how you live in outrage like that. Everybody's offended by something. 
Michael Hofflin gave me a book or recommended a book called Unoffendable where it's like you can't even be offended. Uh, but everybody, like there's, uh, not everybody, but there's so much out there and I, I think we believers can get swept up into that. We're just as outraged and we're angry and we're fighting and we're insulting and we're sarcastically putting down this person and that person and we're seeing them as those stupid people who are bound down to this idol and everything and I think we, have, we hurt our witness because that's just the flesh reacting to the flesh. It doesn't matter whether you're bowing down to this idol or that idol. It's still an idol. And I don't think that's the exploits that God is calling his people to. Let me give you a particular example. And I could share a bunch. But I believe, based on God's word, that life begins at conception. I believe that. So I will stand for that. I will fight for the unborn. But not in an angry, combative way. I want to stand for the unborn in such a way that it doesn't alienate, but rather offers hope and love and compassion to those who believe in abortion and especially to those who have had an abortion. I mean, over the years, pastorally, how many women I've met who share that they've had an abortion. Boy, I want them to know the love of God. I want them to know the love of Christ, the acceptance. If they feel guilty, and often they do, I want them to feel the absolute freedom from that that comes through Christ. Let there not be in our hearts this anger. I'm telling you, that's just a different idol. When you think like, okay, I'm going to be angry in this way. The time to get angry is over sin and the way it affects people, but not angry, sarcastic against people. Because here's the impact of the gospel. When the gospel impacts our hearts, it doesn't just turn us from idols to, living, to the living God. It makes our hearts want to see others turn from idols to the living God. We don't want to just slam them. We want to see them saved by the love of Christ. Amen? So no matter what the situation, I'm going to bring that point to a close. Stand for God and bow to God and never count God out because he is powerful second point that we see in this is god is holy so here's what happens in this story god gets uh, dagon gets knocked down he gets cut up his hands are on the threshold his head's on the threshold but that's not all god is doing god is actually his hand it says is heavy upon the people of ashdod they are getting these tumors break out painful tumors rats are running free and people are dying right and left and so they decide we got to get rid of the ark we got to get it out of here so they move it to another philistine town called gath well gath accepts it gratefully until they start dying right and left and tumors start breaking out and so they're like okay let's move this to the philistine town of ekron ekron sees it coming they say no way no way you ain't bringing that thing here and so here's what they decide to do they put it on a cart they put some gold on there 
and they put two milk cows that have never pulled a cart in their life and they say let's see what happens if this thing is of God that this cart's going to know where to go well sure enough the cows bring it back to Israel it brings it to a, a small town called Beth Shemesh and the Jews are out in the fields and all of a sudden they look up and on a cart pulled by two cows they see the Ark of the Covenant coming back and they rejoice it's like God has returned to us God's blessing and favor has returned to us and they rejoice and they do so much right they take that ark and they put it on a stone and they kill those poor cows um, and and offer them as a burnt sacrifice an offering to God and they worship God and they're doing great until uh, several of the guys decide let's look inside the ark let's just peek inside and see what's in there And so they do. They look inside the ark. Verse 19. And God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Remember the big moment in Raiders of the Lost Ark? When the Nazis gather around the ark, they've got Indiana Jones and Marion tied to the pole. Do you remember that? If you've seen the movie. And uh, they've got this pseudo priest. He's an archaeologist, but he's dressed up like a Jewish priest. And they decide to open the ark. And in the beginning, they're seeing all these colors and waves and, and angels and all this. And the, and the pseudo priest, he cries out, it is so beautiful. And then all of a sudden, the power of God just begins to kill them right and left. Every single one of them. And the big moment when the Gestapo's agent, just his face just melts right off of him. Remember that? And the only reason Indiana Jones and Marion didn't die is because they kept their eyes shut. They didn't look upon the ark. Now, I don't know if the men of Beth Shemesh's faces melted off. I don't know. But I'll tell you this, God put them to death for looking into the ark. They knew the ark was holy, but they treated it as no big deal. This brings us to a rather uncomfortable point about God, but stick with me because there's a good ending to this point. There's not a lot of fear of God. I feel in, in the days today a lot of people don't believe him God exists it's easy to be an atheist today and just say ah, I don't believe God's exists many people have no fear of judgment who's God to judge me anyway ironically many people think I can judge God if God were good why does he do that if God is good why does he do that if God's powerful why doesn't he do that they judge God, but they're like, don't you judge me, God. Who are you to judge me? You know what it is? I think we live, we live, I mean, cultures have different strengths and weaknesses, right? And I think we live in a time where we're very narcissistic. We're very self-con, we think we're great. And so don't you judge me. Don't you take my rights away from me. Don't you do this. Don't step on my toe. Don't. It's all about us. And we do the same thing with God. We just kind of think, you know, God, come on. 
Or, and in light of that, if we don't discount his existence completely, or we don't blaspheme him, then we just think, well, God loves me, because who wouldn't? That's what God does. He just loves. He just accepts. He's just nice. God is nice. See, today, if somebody was writing this song, the hymn we close with, it would be more like, nice, nice, nice. God is nice. Doesn't work musically. <laughs> how nice. Oh, that's right. We didn't sing holy, holy, holy. We sang how nice thou art. Yes, that's right. That, see, that fits so well. I was obviously, I loved the song, but I obviously wasn't paying attention to the. Okay, yeah. How nice thou art. Yes. Here's, listen, here's what we need to understand. And we do need to understand this. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You don't even approach wisdom till you start with the fear of God. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, don't fear people. All they can do is kill you. That, actually, that seems like kind of scary to me. I don't know about you, but it's like all you can do is slash me up and kill me? Come on. But that's what Jesus said. He said, don't you fear people. All they can do is kill your body and nothing else. Fear God. I'll tell you who to fear, Jesus says. Fear God. He can kill your body and then he can cast you into hell. That's a, that's a strong word. And then Jesus comes back around and says, yes, I tell you, fear him. That doesn't sound very nice. Have you ever experienced terror? I honestly don't know if I've ever experienced terror in my life. Fear, yeah. But terror. Terror is like the ramped up fear. You can't think. You, you can't function. Some people experience night terrors. When they wake up, they're flailing, and they're sometimes screaming, and they're just panic-stricken with terror. What would cause terror in your heart? I can think of some things. For me, heights. Now, I, I can be on a building, I can fly a plane, no problem. But you put me in charge of the heights, like I'm on a 50-foot ladder or climbing a mountain or anything where I'm involved, or I'm depending on some little flimsy thing, terror. If you don't have fear of heights, you don't feel that terror. But what brings terror to your heart? Is it something demonic? Seeing some dark demonic thing in your room? It would be the psychopath encountering a psychopath. I mean, think about it, terror. What would bring terror to your heart? Maybe natural disasters? Natural disasters? You know what tops the list of a lot of people's uh, this, this is what terrifies me, public speaking. Most people would rather face a psychopath than speak in front of a group of people. We'll come back to that in a moment. But Jesus is saying the greatest reason for terror is God. Now, I know you're thinking, wait a minute, this... You, 
you know, first of all, this God doesn't sound very nice. I remember a friend reading a book called uh, when, when People Are Big and God is Small, and he wrote on the sideline about something about how holy God is. He wrote, this makes God sound intimidating. To call God intimidating is like calling the sun warm. You're making God sound not nice. You're making God sound mean and cruel. Not at all. There is no meanness and there is no cruelty in the heart of God. We don't have anything to fear from God as far as meanness or cruelty goes. What we need to be terrified of is the goodness of God. Is the love of God. Because God's goodness and his holiness is like the sun. We can't even bear to look at it. We can't even come near it without it burning us to toast. We can't imagine how our sin, which even when we think we're pretty good, how filthy it is when it's put against the white hotness of God's holiness. Why, why is there a fear of public speaking at times? I submit to you it's because it's the gaze of people. It's feeling exposed by in front of people that they see you. And if you are mess up or anything, you've got all these people seeing you and judging maybe, maybe they're not, but you think they're judging you and you feel exposed and you feel vulnerable and you feel, I don't want to be looked at like that. God's piercing eyes will look through us and there will not be a single place, a single corner that God will not permeate with his gaze and we will feel so exposed, so vulnerable, so undone. Even Isaiah, who was a pretty great guy, said, woe to me, I am a man unclean. Even God's wrath is motivated by his white-hot love. It would be unloving of God not to judge and punish sin. Apart from Christ, nothing should terrify us more than God if it weren't for Christ. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So we come back to the Ark of the Covenant. In Jesus' day, the Ark of the Covenant was in the temple. And it was in the Holy of Holies, separated by a curtain that went from top to bottom an inch thick. And as Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it is finished and died. The Bible says there was an earthquake. And that curtain tore, ripped in half from the top to the bottom and opened up so that holy of holies where nobody but the high priest once a year could come in was now open to anybody who would come in under one condition. Because when Jesus died, he is the great high priest who went to the Ark of the Covenant in heaven and poured his blood on the mercy seat so that we could be forgiven and our sins could be cleansed 
and we would receive not only forgiveness, but his righteousness. So we are clothed with the white robe. Take that dirty robe of your good works and your efforts and your thoughts about God and religious and all that. Take it off and throw it off and put on the robe of Christ. That's what we do when we believe in Jesus. The righteousness of Christ, which is so brilliant and so perfect that we stand before God perfect and righteous and we can stand before him. And now the curtain is torn apart so that we don't have to say, hey, is it that time of the year where we can come into the presence of God? The Bible says come into his presence boldly, confidently, every moment, every day. His heart is open to you. Not as a judge, as a father who loves his sons and his daughters. And so praise Jesus that we are able to come into his presence every day and we don't have to be afraid. But it's only because of Jesus Christ. If we come in our own set, when someone comes in their own and stands, they will not stand. And there's nothing somebody who does not believe in Jesus should be more terrified of than God. But God invites everybody to trust in Jesus, his son. It's the only way to be saved. It's the only power to save our souls and help us stand before God. But what a way it is. What a way it is. If you have never received Jesus Christ, believe in him today. Believe in him today. Because through Christ, you can come boldly to God as your father and not fear judgment. You know, for us, Jesus took the wrath of God for our sins. You realize there is no wrath left in God's heart for you if you're trusting in Christ. No wrath. He didn't reserve a little bit of wrath. He exhausted his wrath upon his son. There is no wrath left. Isn't that good news? I deserve wrath. I'm not getting any. Because of Christ, God is holy. The fear of the Lord for the believer is not terror, it's reverence. We still walk in the fear of the Lord. We revere him. We are in awe of him. We respect him. But never terror. Never terror. Let's continue. There's one more point, and I'm going to make this very quickly. Third point, God is committed to his people. God is committed to his people. The inhabitants of Beth Shemesh are afraid of God because God's hand was upon them for looking into the ark. And so they send the ark to another town, Kiriath-Jerim, and that's where the ark will stay for 20 years until David moves it. But I want to point this out. As far as scripture indicates, the ark had returned to Israel before Israel had returned to God. He is committed to his people. God returned to be with them and to bless them. Chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, brings fast forwards us, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. 
So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. What happened here? In Eli's place, God raised up a faithful judge and a faithful priest in Samuel. Samuel called them to return to God. Put away the idols and return to God. But God had already returned to his people. He is committed. God never abandons his people. He is committed to his people. So, <clears throat> sometimes we feel like God is far away in our lives. But God is committed to you. And he will never abandon you. That's why Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jesus said, I am with you always to the ends of the age. Jesus never abandons his people. I love that. Sometimes we turn to other gods and we mess up and we blow it and we worship at wrong idols. But God returns to us before we return to him because that's how committed he is to you. Let that sink into your heart. Let that be your strength and your encouragement. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for who you are. If we were to create a God, we might not create the God the Bible indicates. That's kind of the point. God is not like us. He is other, which is what holy means. But Lord, we thank you that we also would not have devised the cross the wisdom of God to save us and so Lord this morning we come to you through the cross through what Jesus did on the cross he cried out it is finished we have nothing to add to our salvation except to believe Jesus he tore the curtain so that we could come into the presence of God, into the throne room of God with confidence and boldness. He did that. He took our sin upon his shoulders and he put his righteousness upon our shoulders. He did it all. We come by Jesus and only Jesus. We trust no good work. We trust no effort of our own. We trust Jesus. And Lord, for anyone who doesn't know Jesus, I pray that you will fill their heart with the fear of God. Not so that it results in terror, but so that it results in trust in Christ and his work. And we give you all the praise. We give you all the honor. And we do love you, Lord, because you loved us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a, have a great week. We'll see you.